You're listening to Healing Voices Project, where we share stories and the latest information from people who fight addiction every day. I'm Mike Torville, your host and author of Voices from the Fallen. Thank you for listening, for following, and most of all, for sharing with people you care about. Make your voice count too. Everybody, I'm Mike Torville, host of Healing Voices Project. Glad you're here with us today, and also very happy about our guest, uh, Ananda Lennox, who is the coordinator for the Care Coalition in West Springfield, Massachusetts. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I you know we've we've kind of um, in the same circles a lot, yeah. and we've crossed paths a million times. Yeah. But finally, it's the first time we get to <laughs> no. actually talk first face to face. And Ananda, you have a um, uh, you've been in the field of prevention for 10 years mm-hmm. now, and as a care coalition um, coordinator for West Springfield, you've also had experience in Northampton. Yep. You were a care coalition coordinator there. Um, from- yeah, I worked for, I was a coordinator for the Northampton Prevention Coalition. Mm-hmm. Very similar entity, same funding. Okay. You know, so yeah. we're, we were both entities that were funded through the Drug-Free Communities Grant, mm-hmm. and how that works, because funding's always an issue with preventive work, right. <laughs> is um, you can apply for two rounds of funding through DFC, and so NPC had used up its two rounds, and so I stayed long enough to um, get an extension so that we could continue for another year while the city decided what they were going to do with it. But as a, um, a mom of three boys, I didn't have a year to wait to see what their decision was. So um, I had been, um, how did this position came about? My previous supervisor helped train Christine, my current supervisor, on how to run a DFC grant and knew that she had lost her coordinator and so that she got me in contact so that I knew the job was open. I applied and that was, the rest is history. So. Right in the midst of COVID, I believe. All yeah, this it happened right, right. yeah, it was a mess. Yeah, it was a mess. Because you've been in West Springfield now for just two years. It was it January of 20? Three years, Three actually. years. Yep. Because yep. it was January yep. of 21. Yep, yep. That, wow. Yeah. It's quite, it goes by fast. Wow. And I remember I, previous, it was, was it Nikki? Yeah, Nikki Lewis. Nikki Lewis. Yeah. yeah I, I remember Nikki. Yeah. Wow. So three years, that's fast. Yeah. So yeah, you're very busy. you got three teenage boys. Yep. You also have a, um, a mini farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I'm exaggerating. Um, but you have an Australian Shepherd, two cats, and a little flock of chickens, too? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you're yeah. busy. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I think I, you know, <laughs> I want to be a farmer, but I don't have the time to be it. And I'm not like a really happy winter farmer, you know, so I, the winter keeps me in check. I think three boys keeps you in check, and your full-time job keeps you in check. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot, right? Right. Um, Well, they're finally at ages where they can be helpful. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. Helpful with all the animals. Everything, yeah. Yeah. My older son um, is working as a carpenter, and I live in an old house. And so right now, that's been a beautiful relationship. Oh, nice. Wow. But you're um, caring. Your love of animals goes back a while, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I grew up... uh, in a, like a little suburban neighborhood with no access to anything, a postage stamp um, backyard. But my meme, who lived about a mile away, um, and my aunt lived on this dead end road. And my aunt raised, she was one of those people who was like an early adopter of like homesteading. So she raised her own um, beef cattle, turkey, chicken, squab, whatever you name it. I at the time was a vegetarian and couldn't imagine killing any of those things. So I would just go and like pay attention to her animals. Um, and then at 11, my parents gave me the best gift ever, and they gave me horseback riding lessons. Wow. So I did that for, God, almost 20 years, um, and then wanted to be a veterinarian, and 
didn't pursue that path, but then um, landed a job after my bachelor's degree working at the Dakin Animal Shelter yeah. as an adoption That was counselor. your very first real job. That was my first real job, yeah, yeah, yeah. really, if you yeah. don't count CVS and mocking stalls. So, But yeah, so animals, yeah, definitely goes far back. Yeah. Yeah. And when I wanted to be a school counselor, part of it was I, I really was attracted to the idea of having um, some kind of role where you could use therapy animals with the kids because I feel like in prevention, I'm sure when we talk about uh, mm-hmm. this work in general, um, the overlap with mental health is just so apparent. Right. And yeah. I think that when I think about animals and especially young people, um, you know, we're not always dealt the same deck with the families we're given, but um, but animals are always so unbiased and loving and stuff that I think that they can be very therapeutic and a lot of times keep people from loneliness in a way that I think if they didn't exist it wouldn't be such a nice place to live. Oh, without a doubt. And animals can certainly change your moods, you know, and if it's the affection. And it can go the other way, too, because just this morning at 5.30, my (laughs) wife let our dog out, and she started barking and howling and woke me up, woke up the neighbors, and I'm, like, running out there in my little pajamas, and it's freezing out, and I'm like, get back. So he changed my mood this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, just so that you uh, don't think, you know, create the stereotype that I'm like, oh, animals are wonderful all the time. My mom is a bleeding heart for all animals, and the things that she'll put up with are crazy. My cats, for example, are trained. They do not wake me up in the morning. Mm-mm. See, they know mm-mm. better. Yeah. No, if you interrupt my sleep, mm-mm. your mm-mm. kids must know better too. Uh, they're not as well trained. Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you. Um, I think the two do tie in a, a yeah. lot for a lot of different reasons, but also too. I mean, after you sort of put your veterinarian plans to the side, yeah. you went into education, and now you have a master's from UMass mm-hmm. in school counseling. Yep. And which led to you too. Um, well, it led me to a small time period where I called myself an ambulance chaser because even though I knew this was a profession I wanted to get into, mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought that it would be that difficult to land a job. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, when you think statistically, if I had stuck with like, you know, I'm licensed to teach English. If I wanted to be an English teacher and I wanted to stay in like within 20 miles of commute, mm-hmm. I probably could have found a job pretty easily. Mm-hmm. But there aren't that many school counselors. Like, I, I was licensed as a guidance counselor, so there's adjustment counselors and guidance mm-hmm. counselors in Massachusetts. Licensing for everything is very specific. Yeah. So I had to keep waiting for somebody to go on maternity leave or die or <laughs> retire. Um, and I was, I had three kids to support and not a lot of patients. So I was, again, in this, like, reality versus whatever. So with this job, I never ended up being able to serve. I did my practicum and all my hours, but what ended up happening is a friend and neighbor of mine let me know that Smith Vocational was hiring for an interim, what was the ISS, interim student support. So basically I was one of those people sitting in a cinder block room with kids that were feeling disenfranchised and very unhappy to be in school. And I was there with my very fresh, very new um, master's degree and took copious notes and data on mm-hmm. what it was like to be a disenfranchised student at Smith Folk. So um, it was very actually interesting work, a little boring at times, but they um, got rid of the position after a year. Uh And um, so then I was again scrambling to be like, okay, applying for all these counseling jobs, there weren't very many. And then uh, another friend, same friend actually, um, had said, have you heard about the Northampton Prevention Coalition? They're looking for a youth engagement coordinator, because that's how I started. And they're hiring, it's part-time. At the time that would work work for me, it was fully benefited. And I actually never thought that I wanted to work in prevention. Like, I wanted to do mental health and I wanted to do stuff like that, but I was like, I think drugs is too narrow for me. And prevention obviously never occurred to you. 
It, no, it wasn't. I was more yeah. interested in like helping kids plan for their future. I wasn't thinking about preventing bad outcomes. I was focused more on like what what are your possibilities. Mm -hmm. But then when I um, interviewed with NPC and started doing the work, I was like, wait, this is really helpful. You know, like I can see I can see why this is important, and I like that they were progressive. It wasn't a dare program or just say no on drugs. Like the big message um, that I continue with the Care Coalition was like, we're talking about delaying use. We're talking about substance use and the potential for addiction and dependency being kind of like a adolescent disease. You mm -hmm. know, like if you're exposed at a younger age, your chance of becoming addicted or growing dependent um, are increased greatly. And so NPC, um, the training I got there with just going into like brain development, adolescent development in general, um, how to talk to your kids, delaying use. Um, I really bought into the like there's so many social skills you miss out on if you go instantly to the drugs you know because there's right. a lot of things we have to deal with when we're managing our emotions in life growing up it's like asking somebody out on a date and getting rejected um having the guts to even walk into a room applying for a job like if you're if you haven't learned the skills to do those things during that kind of window it sets you up for a lot of failure later on you're impairing yourself yeah exactly obviously. yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I would think, because it's happened with myself, once I got involved with this, my eyes were opened yeah, to yeah. things I thought, my goodness, I didn't know. There's so much I didn't know. Yeah. You felt the same way? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And then the more I think you, and I'm not speaking for you, but for me, the more I learned, the more I realized that there is a way to make an impact because a lot of people don't know um, and, and I think don't know how much they possibly want could impact mm -hmm. by, you know, even just awareness right, yeah. and recognizing things with their teens or adolescent um, kids and, and high school students and so on. But there's so much that you learn and I've learned even just by being a part of the community. For example, the um, the HCAP meetings, the yeah, Hamlin yeah. County Addiction Task Force meetings. I wasn't even aware that this network existed to the degree it does. Same. And I said, <laughs> my goodness, mm -hmm. there is so many people in this feel I had no idea yeah. and and how much of a problem it was yeah. how prevalent it was and so yeah my eyes were opened yeah. and I thought my goodness I had that my head in the sand and I didn't even know it mm -hmm. and it's kind of a luxury yeah. to have your head in the sand isn't it well certainly a lot of times it, yeah. it I mean it yeah. might not for you directly but a lot of times it means like you're kind of this fortunate group that hasn't been impacted directly which is a wonderful thing even though I think we've all been you know, substance use and dependency and addiction impacts us all. We might not always realize it. Even but indirectly, but yes. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, but, yeah. yeah. And I often say there's hardly a family that can be found, the more I've learned about this, that is not affected. Yeah. Because when we did, it started when I had written the book, mm -hmm. and, and I didn't intend to write a book. It just, the, the more things I learned from people, I said, my goodness, these stories have to be told. And, and then when we did the movie about the Jack Jonah movie, yeah. um, so many people in the community got involved. I said, well, this is great that you want to get involved. Yeah, I want to because my brother passed yeah, away. Yeah, or yeah. my, or, and I, and so many people had their own stories. I said, my goodness, everywhere you turn. Yeah. Um, and, and so I didn't realize the extent of it. Yeah. And Same. once you do hear that, then you think, well, um, a lot of people who, end up in, in encountering this and have to contend with it within their family often say, and I feel like I repeat this a lot, it's like, well, when we first learned that my son or daughter um, had an addiction problem, we didn't know what to do. We had no idea how to handle it. We didn't know who to call. And as a result of that, we made a lot of mistakes. Yep. Yeah. And 
So I think the preemptive action, the prevention um, things that you certainly are involved with with the adolescent certainly is, is of vast importance because this is where people say, no, I don't need to know about it. Well, maybe you do. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. That's yeah. probably like if I could correct one misunderstanding about people would be like, the reason you want to know is not because you have a problem now, it's because you don't have a problem now. And it's so much easier to keep it that way. That's exactly like it, yes. it, it's like yes. that. If there could be one takeaway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, prevention is like super important. Um, yeah, because I, I, we put out parent surveys. Every coalition I've worked for, you put out mm-hmm. parent surveys, and we use it. Um, you know, the answers I get sometimes are really interesting, um, and you can tell that people get a little confused because I might ask questions like, "How often in the past year have you talked with your child about you know alcohol, whatever?" And some people, and then I'll always leave room for like other comments. And some people write, "We don't have to talk about these things. My kids are good." Uh-huh. Not very many comments, but some. And you're just sort of like, oh, "Okay, like you know." So we need to do a different type of education around that, you know, like because we're just asking these questions because what we do oftentimes is we survey the youth, you know. So we have a survey we do every other year where we ask eighth, tenth, and twelfth graders, which is just this cohort that was determined nationwide like those are the ones you're going to compare year after year Mm -hmm, after mm -hmm, year um you know about their perceptions of like how dangerous do you think x y or z drug is um do you feel connected to your community and so what we assess through these surveys is like what are called risk and protective factors so there's certain things that we know can increase your risk of having bad outcomes right so if you're using alcohol at age 14 you're probably going to see lower attendance rates. You're probably going to see more delinquent behavior, you know, because one, drinking at 14 is already an antisocial, quote unquote, behavior, right? So you you measure those things and then you look at the protective factors, like do you live somewhere where you feel like your accomplishments are recognized? Are there um, opportunities for you to do really cool things? You know, um, do you feel comfortable? Do you have somebody in your home that you feel like you can talk to? So we get all of that perspective from the youth and then on a very, very small scale from the parents, we try to see what they say to see if if the connection is there. Because I will tell you the one thing that you'll see the biggest disconnect, and as a parent I completely identify with this, is I can bet you any money that there is probably 90% of parents out there that are like, yes, I've talked to them about alcohol. Yes, I've done it in the last year. And the kids are like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't a very memorable conversation, (laughs) obviously. You're right. And so that's why a lot of times we're encouraging parents or guardians, like, have it be an ongoing conversation. Because you can... You know, I know I'm a mom. You could spend hours doing your research and prepping and making sure that you do it right and you don't want to, like, turn them off. And should we do it in the car? Like, don't make eye contact. You know, like, all these things that you find online as to, like, how to do it best. And have that big conversation. And they're just sort of like, "Uh uh-huh. You know, so it's like, you know, if you can do it more frequently, have it not be so high pressure. um, You know, talk about your family history. Like you said, I mean, myself included, my extended family, you know, what we know now could have helped them so much, but like long lineage of alcoholism, some cocaine use, definitely marijuana use, um, nicotine, all of that sort of stuff. And so much of it, I think, was, um, you know, in hindsight, um, misplaced self-medication for my extended family, at least. You know, there was some past trauma and stuff, and the young men in particular, my uncles had a really hard time with drugs and alcohol. Um, And so we know so much more now. And so, like, when I, when I survey parents and when I try to put information out there, one of the messages I try to give them is I'm like, have these ongoing conversations. And it can just, you know, when you're talking about, like, raising kids, like, if you have a partner, that's great. If you don't, you don't, you know, whatever, that's ideal. But um, what are your expectations for them? What are your hopes and dreams for them? Um, what do you really enjoy about them? 
Um, can you have a candid conversation? Um, when you're talking about drugs and alcohol, it doesn't have to be this mythological thing. It can be the same thing like, you know, when, when, why do we have dessert after dinner? Well, because we want to make sure your nutritional needs are met first, right? So, like, why are we not drinking alcohol at the table at 14? Because your brain's still developing. you got to wait until you're older. Well, you and Dad drink. Well, we do, but we're adults, you know? So, like, just having these conversations and letting your kids know what's expected of them, being really transparent about it, and not having it be a one-time conversation, and just kind of incorporate it with everything else. I, I agree, incorporating and, and having it ongoing. Yeah. And then maybe it'll stick a little right. bit. Right, right. <laughs> you know, um, and there's a few things that, um, so much of what you said, uh, is, is one of the things is, in, and I have th four grandchildren, and they're about the same ages of your kids. Thanks. The oldest is 18, 16, 14, and 4. Yeah. Um, little gap there. But, yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the same things. And I watch my son and his wife and how they, they live in West Springfield. And yeah. You've probably crossed paths with each of those kids <laughs> um, in, the, in the school. But um, the thing that I really appreciate, because I... Of course, I watch it. I'm the grandfather, but yeah. my son and daughter-in-law are very involved, yeah. and the involvement of their activities, I think, is so crucial. Whether it's sports or art or whatever it is, the kids are involved yeah. with to be involved. And if you're not that involved, and it could be because you have demands at home, and maybe you have other maybe kids working or two jobs, two or, yeah. jobs, or working at night. And I know it's out, <clears throat> not always. It's easily said and not done. But I think as a parent, looking for gaps. Yeah gaps of what don't I know about what my child yeah. is doing yeah where's yeah. those where do those mysteries go where do they take me do I know all their friends yeah. yeah um do I know what they're doing for periods of time after school for the two yeah. or three hours until we have dinner what occupies their time right and those are the gaps that you have to identify to right. say what mysteries am I not aware of here right right yeah and they sometimes lead you to places that warrant a conversation. Yeah, absolutely, yes. <laughs> you know? Yes, definitely. Um, and you said something earlier about the, the antisocial um, use of, of, of alcohol. Yeah. And I think in a, an adolescent's mind, it's this, this just the opposite. No, no, this, isn't, this is very social. <laughs> I have to drink with my friends. Yeah. And so they perceive it as completely the opposite. Yeah. You know? And I, I do want to, like, you know, say that there is a difference. Like, as as much as like we want the message for young people to be like, you're too young, don't drink yet. Yeah. There is a huge difference between attending a party during your senior year and having a couple beers and drinking at age 13. Right. Like, there is a huge difference. Like, 13, find somebody with alcohol, huge red flag. 17 year old senior at a party, not a huge red flag. Doesn't mean that you still want to condone it and allow it because you have to worry about assaults, you have to worry about impaired driving, you have to worry about property damage. There's lots of things that go wrong with adolescents because I think what teens don't think about, and I think adults forget sometimes too, but is that you can minimize alcohol. You can say, all right, I had a couple, he had or she had a couple beers at a party. But it's that lowering of inhibitions with an age group that already have lower inhibitions. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. So it, it's just like I think one of the things that's hard to convey to teenagers sometimes, especially if they haven't drank before or smoked or whatever, is that when we're having a conversation on this level, your entire brain is involved. Like you're hearing me, you can be rational, whatever. Mm -hmm. But we all know that if you've had a couple glasses of wine, and then somebody says, let's go do whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your inhibitions you know? fade away. And for me at my age, it might be, let's go dancing. Okay. Right. But like at 17, it might be, let's go jump in the pool from the second floor. You know, and you might not say that 
Sure, when sober, but after you've had a couple glasses of something, you're more likely to say yes. And yes. so I think that's one of the tricky parts with this age group is like, okay, it might not be um, like a psychological, I'm not finding the words right now, but like it might not be as big of a red flag for somebody at 17 to attend a party and have a drink as it is to a 13-year-old because we just know that that is really, like our society has norms enough to say like 13-year-olds drinking, that's bizarre. But our norms are much more accepting of a 17-year-old. I'm not saying that that's what we want, but, but it just means that it's easier to say, okay, you broke the rules, we have a way to handle this. But with 13, I think if a parent finds anything in the room that would alert them to substance use, that is something that I would say you need to take action on immediately. And with a 17-year-old, it's a different conversation. You still need to take action, but it's not... Um, it's not necessarily the sign of antisocial behavior, like you said. Yeah. It's more of a like, let's talk about peer pressure. Let's talk about joining in. Let's talk about um, why you made that choice while you were there. You know, like how could you make better choices in the future? And you know, the conversations aren't always easy. But one of the things I just thinking about is the first one is probably the hardest because a child rolled their eyes on. They're intruding on my privacy, yeah, or they're just yeah, yeah. talking about things I'm uncomfortable with. But the first couple times may be a little awkward, but but the more you have those conversations, the more comfortable they become, because yeah. the child is just hearing it again, and it just I think it would become a little easier if you make a practice of it. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll say with my kids, like you know, this is my profession, right? You know, yeah. So I and I have a very dark sense of humor. Uh, everybody in my family jokes around about things all the time, and like with my boys, I will joke with my girlfriends. I'm like. You know, with my luck, I'm going to have three kids that have, like, drug problems because that's what happens with professionals, right? Like, you, <laughs> you hear about that a lot. Yeah, but, right, um, right, right. but I will say, um, because I've been doing this since my kids were little, um, it, it's kind of similar to, like, when I've heard kids talk about having a dad or a mom who works as, like, a detective in a narcotics unit. Like, it's just, it becomes more of a conversation just because you have a parent that's living in this world. And mm -hmm. so, so I think... Uh, you know, my family situation is probably different from others just because it's such a big part of what I do mm -hmm. that it has been an ongoing conversation since they were quite young. Yes. And I work in prevention, so it's not like doom and gloom necessarily. It's more like just talking to my kids about like, I just learned this today and da da da. And I saw a kid today that was really struggling with this. I'm really glad you guys are making these choices. And so it has become easier. Um, but that being said, my elder son has a much easier time with conversations than my middle guy does. My middle guy just doesn't talk doesn't like yeah. to it's hard and my youngest has really severe ADHD and I'm still waiting to see how he turns out because I'm worried about him like, I'm sure crazy. he'll turn out fine I, I think he's so, got <laughs> some good guidance here right yeah. <laughs> um, and speaking of that I think with guidance and you know I think years ago and I just we just had a friend who passed away this past weekend um, in Rhode Island and he has a history of drug and alcohol abuse he was in his late 40s, and they found him in his apartment after a couple days, they think. But um, the toxicology reports haven't come in yet. So, but, but anyway, the point of bringing this up is um, throughout, as I've learned, throughout his life, his early life, he's often misguided mm -hmm. by people in his life. Yeah. And I think that's in years ago because he's older but even now because it's always like an involvement like 10 years ago your job was different than it is yeah, now it was, yeah. right yeah. and even the the amount of um the, the focus on this the amount of guidance through the schools yeah. um was different and mm -hmm. i think that was lacking years yes, ago yes um 
Anyway, we, we, we talked somewhat about what kids don't pay attention to and when you're trying to, but, but what are they paying attention to? How do you actually get through? What seems to be working when you're saying, hey, pay attention to this? What's, what's resonating with them? Um, so much of it has to do with delivery, I will say. So, like, in the Care Coalition, for the younger kids, so, like, primary prevention really should just be started really young, right? But that doesn't mean you want to ignore high school-age kids because there's other well, right. kinds of prevention. And other things occur than the peer pressure within yeah. that age. Even though they were counseled prior to, right. that peer pressure is pretty strong. One thing yeah. I'm a big fan of that seems to, um, it might not get to the crux of your question, but but just going with delivery for a minute is mm-hmm. I have a bunch of high school students that range from like sophomores through seniors that have been trained to be peer educators. Mm-hmm. And so with this group, I, um, I've i been doing it, this will be the third year, and this is the first year that I've had a really nice sized troop because it takes a while. I train them on how to deliver prevention presentations and I try to get their buy-in and feedback so that it's more of a working relationship and not me saying, hey, we're going to do this kind of thing. They're not, they're, you mean? They're collaborators. They're collaborators. Yeah. They're actually in, involved and not just doing the passive listening. They're actually doing it right. themselves. Yeah, yeah. That makes a difference. Yep. Yeah. So um, so we took, but of course we were under pressure, um, rightly so, to at least use evidence-based you know, materials. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to go out and put unfactual stuff out there or whatever. Theoretical stuff. It's, yeah. yeah. So we, we basically take the, sh- the shell or template of the Catch My Breath curriculum, which is something that um, CBS put out several years ago for vape prevention. Mm-hmm. So for the past two years, um, we've had good success with the sixth graders paying attention to us on vape prevention because we have teenagers deliver the message. And so for the past two years, we would go into the sixth grade science classes, which is a wonderful collaboration. Like all of the principals in all the schools I've worked in have been very receptive to having us come through. You always have to be careful to tie it in with the mass core frameworks. And so the principal has been like, as long as it's in science, as long as it's in health ed, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And so um, what's been helpful is having teenagers come in and talk to the students about it. So we have a presentation. Um, the more experience we get with this, the better we get at it. Like mm-hmm. I will say the first year was just sort of like, catch my breath is, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the favorite part of the presentation were the 10 minutes at the end where they can just ask whatever questions. And so so one thing that resonates with kids is having other kids talk to them. you know. And it's really a beautiful thing to see a 16-year-old um, interacting with a 12-year-old and just acting as a mentor, you know, acting as an educator, for the teenager, they're getting presentation skills. It's building their confidence. They're getting so many compliments because mm-hmm. these kids see them as like minor celebrities. And so it's very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just expanded to the fifth grade this year, okay. which is even sweeter because the fifth grade at the end, there was one little boy that was like, we should give them an ovation. Wow. Right? And so, wow. like, yeah. so the teenagers are leaving just feeling chuffed because, like, it's a really lovely experience, right? Um, so that's one way that we're getting the message through is by having the teenagers be the ones that lead, you know, by example and providing the information. And then they can answer like real time questions like, are there vapes in every bathroom? You know, and, like, is everybody doing it? And like, then they can they can answer that. And, and we now have some students who had vaped for years and had a hard time quitting who can even answer questions about like, well, this is how it happened for me. And it was like pretty bad. And I'm glad I stopped now. So that's one way. Mm-hmm. With the upperclassmen, it is a little trickier um, because I, I feel like every time I say there's three camps, I go, well, really, there's 20 camps. But, you know, for a high school, you have a percentage of students that 
aren't using, haven't used, don't want to use, and they have their reasons. Like maybe they're just, their identity is really tied into band. Their family's like really anti-drug and they've got a good family relationship, so they're like whatever. And then you've got the ones that kind of experiment or might be thinking about it or the ones who are using and so far are having a good time with it, so they're like, it's okay. Um, and you're not gonna really make much headway with that group because they're young enough and resilient enough that they're probably not experiencing too many consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if it hasn't bit them in the butt yet, they're like, this is just kind of fun. Um, and then you have the third camp, which is not as common at this age group, but you'll still see it, who are really struggling. Um, and I would say over the last eight years, it's more common to see that group because of the vaping. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it was harder to smoke cigarettes in school, you know, and so vaping has really made it hard. So to answer your question, um, when I present to this age group, um, especially juniors and seniors, what I've been focusing on primarily is fentanyl because fentanyl is like super scary, right? So one is, I think part of what resonates with them is they've heard about it in the news. Um, they know that there's this dire energy around it so that they're, they're more likely to pay attention because they're like, okay, I, I kind of need to know about this. And I definitely spend a lot of time, instead of just talking about this is dangerous, here's a video, this is dangerous, here's a video, I actually explain what fentanyl is, how it came to be, a little bit about the history behind drug policy, like how we're going to say right now, like this pharmaceuticals are to blame, blah, 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 blah. The doctors were taken advantage of. But if you go through history with drug policy, there's a lot of bad stuff that happened. Yeah. There's like a lot of racism that's taken place, a lot of bad policies, a lot of criminalization, that sort of thing. So I try to get them to buy in by just being really honest with them. And then I do spend a good deal of time on harm reduction because what I say to them is I'm like, I'm, I'm very, very clear, I'm like, I don't want you to leave this presentation and think that I'm saying you're going to do drugs or you should do this drug because what I'm trying to say to you right now is like I, if at all costs I would say do not go anywhere near party pills like it's just lousy it's like lousy with fentanyl right so yeah what helps and what resonates for them is like I actually show them like there's this website called streetcheck.org streetcheck.org yeah it's yeah. at a brandeis university mm -hmm. and it's used primarily by people in recovery um so that they can get their drugs tested so that they can know the risk of fentanyl but they keep their they keep the data and you can just um do a search by fentanyl to see what percentage of the street drug supplies that have been checked are are testing positive for fentanyl so i share that with the students you know so nationwide in the last quarter it was 47 percent and I was like, so you've got like, right, a 50-50 chance. Massachusetts was actually higher. It was like 56%. Mm -hmm. And then when you got to Springfield, that was as far down as I could drill, it was 100%. So I was like, so I, I give them that information. And I'm not trying to scare them. I'm just saying like, you live in a time right now where this is really cheap to produce. It's very prevalent in the drug supply. And um, you can't tell from looking it's at the pills. It's undetectable. It's <coughs> undetectable. What I have started to share, though, which I think is um, sometimes unpopular, but I've been getting a lot of encouragement from actually HCAT, mm -hmm. is that um, you do need to let students know about how they can reduce the risk of harm. Like, my big takeaway message is, like, it's really scary out there. You should not be taking these drugs. It's frankly not worth it. But if you're in a situation where somebody is mm -hmm. or you found that you have, there's two things that you can do. Um, the big one that I talk about is Narcan. I'm like, I would really like to normalize Narcan. Like, I don't understand why it isn't in everybody's um, um, first aid boxes. Like, it doesn't hurt to have it. And I'm, I'm very clear with them about, like, if you give it, um, you know, for the wrong reason, like somebody's really intoxicated or whatever, mm -hmm. you're not going to hurt them, right? 
Right. So it, it, you don't need to overanalyze. Is this the right time to do it or not? Right time? There's not going to be any harm if you uh, administer that yeah. it, it inappropriately. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And the thing that I don't get into yet, but um, but I'm going to mull this over for a while, just because the more I talk to harm reductionists, is that um, test strips do exist and they do work. Mm -hmm. um, but I have not yet broached this with teenage populations because I feel like even though I'm really comfortable in my field, there are some things that I'm just sort of like still mulling over. Like, what would be the benefit of talking about test strips at this time? I could see it being really beneficial for first-year college students, you know? Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm morally kind of on the fence right now as to like, should we be making it more widespread that you can use test strips to test these pills? Um, so that's that's a big one that I'm grappling with right now. I don't currently get into it because I feel like it's getting into the weeds. Yeah. And I will say that the videos that have been mass produced from organizations like Song for Charlie and stuff like that just say that you can't test because you have to dissolve the pill and then it's rendered useless anyway. Up. So yeah. But that's not the case actually. So, mm -hmm. but I'm not I'm not going to go in front of a class of 17 year olds and say, put this strip in, dissolve it, drink this. You know, like. Um, because yeah. I don't want to be encouraging that. Right. But I think that there is a time and a place for certain populations, um, and I think this is why you see it more often with people who are actively using, is like, you know, prevention is we're trying to prevent this from happening. And primary prevention is we're hoping it never happens, right? But then you get to these different layers where you're just sort of like, okay, we don't want you to drink, you're a high school student, but we all know about designated drivers, right? You know, so it's like, we don't want you to drink. We're making this very clear. If you are in a situation where somebody you are is drinking or you are drinking, don't get behind the wheel. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so I think that we're still trying to figure this out with different populations. Like, what message is appropriate at this age? So the things that's resonating with the upperclassmen right now is understanding what Narcan is, mm -hmm. understanding how dangerous fentanyl is. And also, I've been trying to introduce the idea that, like, if you are at a party and people are doing these things, you need to have a babysitter. Yeah, that's a good idea because even when you when we said earlier how brave people get when they drink and they can't their judgment is impaired mm -hmm. and they you said oh yeah we can jump off the roof into the pool I can get behind the wheel right. same idea yes it is yeah, yeah. and you know um, that's uh and and you know you brought up Narcan and and the youth presenting and through HCAT and I'd love to get your involvement in this too to some level even if you're it's just your advice but we're going to begin as part of this program here showing the short videos presented by young adults yeah. teens in high school and we already got the youth advisory board involved nice, nice. and we're going to start producing short mm -hmm. short videos to concisely get those messages about Narcan yeah. and about things like the, about the Good Samaritan Yes, yeah. And this we is all done through too, yep. a few folks over at HCAT, Gina and Tony and nice. among others and nice. Paul. And anyway, uh, to your point, and that's why we want to know what's working. Yeah. So how we can help promote those tools that are actually working and, and yeah. sort of enhance that as well. Yeah. So we're certainly going to be working with some uh, high school students to be the presenters. Yeah. And Narcan training and what to expect right. and, and all of that. Um. You know, it, it, and you know, I think you've kind of hit this, but I think when, if you had to say, um, <coughs> with your uh, day to day, because and what you're in, encountering every day with the prevention aspect of it, but if you had to say, just what would, 
if I could just get a few parents who seem to be oblivious, have their heads in the sand like I had, and we talked about that earlier, what gets their attention to say, pay attention to this, I got five minutes to tell you, here's the message, here's what I want to share with you. Um, start paying attention. Is there any one thing that stands out? It's no. just. <laughs> I think what I found with parents um, yeah. is they're, they're a very busy group. Yeah. And the best, the only way to really grab their attention is if you provide what they need in the moment. And that's really hard to do. So that's why we have our surveys out there. Is like I actually ask them, what do you want information about? Mm -hmm. And the, the biggest one by far is social media and mental health. So it doesn't mean that they don't care about, like fentanyl is right up there, vaping's right up there, alcohol is a lot lower. I don't, I don't think it's actually because people don't care about alcohol, but I think it's just that I think we have a lot more practice as a society talking about don't drive drunk, you know, there's an age limit, you know, that right. kind of thing. It's been regulated for a long time. Yeah. Um, I, I think that for parents, it is really hard, but I, I would say what I've found is effective is they don't want to sit through an hour-long talk about all the horrible things that can happen to their kids. Hmm. It doesn't interest them at all. Um, I think what they want more is really helpful sound bites that they can use when they need it. And I think um, reminding them where they can go over and over again when something comes up is helpful too. So, because I, I might worry about something next month, but right now not be receptive to it because it's just not, I've got too many other things to deal with. Right. You know, like right now my kid's struggling with math, so what am I doing trying to relearn the slope of a line? Right, but next month it could be <laughs> right. something else, you know. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, obviously, and that's what life is. Everything just yeah. you know occupies your time. And you know, I was thinking about another sort of analogy to shift a little bit back when you say the fentanyl and the counterfeit pills, or you know, so scary. It's very scary, and I just think of it. If you asked a, a, a teen, you're going to the, the party pills and the, the pill parties or whatever, um, even and smoking, and it, it's in yeah. there too. But. Um, and if there's an amount of fentanyl in there that's not detectable, um, it, and it could be 50% or whatever yeah. you had mentioned earlier, if you thought about it, you, you put it, this is an awful analogy, but if you put a loaded gun and said, let's just start to play Russian roulette, right, right. the odds are the same. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I think one out of six with Russian roulette, they're about, the odds are worse with, with fentanyl. fentanyl. Yeah, it's true. It's so true. would you sit and play Russian roulette? Of right. course not. Right. Yeah. Why would you do this? Right. Both are deadly. Yep. And um, and yet, it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> register the same way. No. Yeah, I know. It's I a know. strange thing. Yeah. Um, and there's so much that sometimes I get frustrated. What What would get the message? What would make people stop and pay attention? Well, and I think I think with teens, it's tricky just because their brains really are wired at this moment in time to be so open and so. Um, so much less risk averse than we are. Mm. You know, like I, I think it was five years ago that I started realizing I don't like walking on ice anymore versus <laughs> I'm out with my teenagers and they're like, oh, it's fun to fall down, right? And I'm just sort of like, I envy you, can't do it, you know? But so many of the things that make them so wonderful and able to take thrilling risk and try new things is the same thing that makes them susceptible to downplaying these messages of harm because if they worried about their fact that they could get hurt all the time, they wouldn't be able to do it. This anything. feeling of invulnerability, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and even adults get that way too sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. you're right, we kind of grow and mature and get a little wiser about yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> but it <laughs> takes a while. Because well, our body forces us to. Like our brain will still sort of like, I should be able to. And you're like, well, when was the last time you actually did that? Oh, wait, it's been 15 years. Okay. <laughs> well, somebody, I'm in my 60s now, and so many times I think something happens, I said, I'm 
maybe by now I should know this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I think sharing yeah. that with your kids helps too. Like yeah. I, I try to like, you know, I think sometimes I do too good a job of like making fun of myself because they think sometimes they think I'm incompetent, but I'm just sort of like, no, 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 no. Like, I mean, I do the same thing. Like, right. I'm just sort of like the reason I'm after you about this is because like I struggle with it myself. Like it's, you know, I'm trying to help yeah. you like get some place where I wasn't able to get, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I tell you what, it's with, with all that you're doing with the, the Care Coalition, parenting, take care of your dog and cats and <laughs> chickens and everything, yeah. <laughs> you really, I, I, I respect all that you're doing because you, it, it's quite a bit. And um, so, but we'd love to, and we got to, I wish we had all day to talk, but we got to start to wrap up here. Um, is there anything about the Care Coalition that we didn't get to talk about that, that you think is... I think Missing. the other, I think the only thing I really want to talk about with the Care Coalition is just sort of like, um, I'd really want to do another shout out to our peer educators. Like I have about 25 of them right now mm -hmm. in rotation and they're amazing students and they do this. We don't pay them or anything like that. They do get out of classes to do it. <laughs> okay, which there's is, a little reward which there, is right? really okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I want to give a shout out to them and I just wanted to um, let I don't know who's going to listen to your podcast, but if you are a parent or a guardian in West Springfield, we do have an active parent survey that's up on our website right now, mm -hmm. um, and we'd love to have people participate in it. The other survey that we have out right now is we're trying to help the mayor's office with determining um, how to use the opioid settlement funds. Right, yeah. yes. Yeah. So um, I know that there's a lot of oversight as to how those funds get spent, and so um, I approached them a couple months ago. I think it was maybe in November, just saying like, you know, there's a lot of surveys circulating and I think, you know, would you be willing to do this? So we have one out. We haven't had a large number of re replies yet, but I think if we could get more um, publicity about it, we might be able to draw more people to it. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that off, off, off recording yeah. um, because I think there's, we'll see how we can help with that. Yeah, and if there's right. any way we can help with that too, and, and of course, is is we are uh, the Healing Voices Project is now a nonprofit too. Nice. So certainly anybody, thank you, <laughs> anybody <laughs> listening who would like to help us out, um, <laughs> we're always looking because we we need to do a better job just yeah. just getting the message out, yeah. and that takes with the social media yeah. and and website and development and all kinds of things that we're just struggling to to get that out. And it mm -hmm. does take time. It takes money. It takes somebody who's an expert yeah. in in promoting and getting right. the word out. So that's the whole job is is to get the message out. I guess the so. only other thing I wanted to say is that yeah. we will be having um, the Jack Jonah Foundation come and speak to our seniors okay. in April. Mm -hmm. We also have um, something called the Think Fast Initiative, which mm -hmm. is a um, safe driving program that the uh, state police are funding right now to come in and um, present to our okay. seniors as well around prom and graduation. Mm -hmm. So we have some nice things coming up. Um, I'm really excited to have the Jack Jonah Foundation. Um, it's been a while, and I think uh, it's an important message for the students to receive. Yeah, and, and Kirk... <coughs> Kirk's a lifelong friend of mine. Yeah. I've known him way too long <laughs> <laughs> um, since we were five. You know, and I see him frequently. We just talked yesterday. But, but yeah, and maybe we can even somehow get involved with that to, to yeah. help each other out. So yeah. we'll, we'll be talking about that. Wonderful. So, um, well, Ananda, thank you very much. It's yeah. been great having you. Yeah, it's a little overdue, me. too. I know, I know. Well, that was my fault. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, that's no, fine. No, this was very comfortable, a very yeah. good host. I really sure, enjoyed yeah. it. Thank you so much. That's good. Great having you. And um, so, um, as we mentioned earlier, Ananda Lennox here from the Care Coalition in West Springfield. Thanks all for listening. And thanks, Ananda, again for joining us. And we'll see you all soon. Thanks. <laughs>